You are now listening to the October 13th broadcast of Unity in Christ. In this hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for the program series, The Attributes of God. Have you ever wondered how God can be one and three all at the same time? There are many verses that talk about God the Father, about Jesus being God the Son, and about the Holy Spirit being God. And yet we have this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, the word one, as in single or solitary, is yachid, but it is never used to describe the unity of God. For example, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God calls out to Abraham and says, Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. In the Hebrew Bible, Yahid is used here as only. Now the Hebrew writers had a completely different word to describe God. It is the word Ichad, and it means many making one. For example, think about a single cluster of grapes. You have one cluster, but many grapes on that cluster. Speaking of grapes, Let's look at Numbers, chapter 13, verse 23, where the writer says, Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men, with some of the pomegranates and the figs. In the Hebrew Bible, Ichad is used for single cluster. Now let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that I read earlier. Now let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that I read earlier. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In this passage, the Hebrews have the word ichad as one, many making one. God is triune meaning that he is one being who exists in three persons. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three separate persons, but they all share the same divine being. This divine unity is called the Godhead. The way the persons of the Trinity relate to one another is shown to us in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let's take a look at this passage. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
When we look at this relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, we see separate persons, separate personalities, yet they are one. They possess the distinctive qualities of being individual, but they are unified in work, purpose, divinity, and essence. It is somewhat like being married. In Mark chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament and says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So when you get married, you don't stop being two separate individuals, but God sees you as one, or Ichad. Now let's take a look at one of the names of God. Elohim is used in the Hebrew Bible extensively in the first chapter of Genesis. Elohim is the plural form of the word El and is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And we know that the three persons of the Godhead created the earth. God the Father created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. God the Son created in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And God the Spirit created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. This ends our program for today. I want to finish with the words of Paul to the Corinthians in his second letter, which he states in chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Until next time, goodbye. Shake and crumble
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we introduced Alan, his bride, Polly, along with Ed Delph, and together they wrote a book titled Learning How to Trust. We talked about how the book came to be the lingering issues of trust, and how trust is applied to our lives today. And this week, we continue that conversation with Alan, Polly, and Ed, and we're going to focus on three main things. Number one, how vows and judgments and generalizations, how they can cripple you. Number two, how to move from the question of why me to what's next. And number three, we're going to learn the five steps to regain trust. So let's get right to it with my first question. 
Polly, how will reading this book make a difference in in my ability to trust? I think that this book raises a person's level of awareness. For one thing, it begins with a story that Ed got the rights to from David and Karen Maines. It's called uh, Princess Amanda and the Dragon Eggs. And uh, it's a story of a young girl who finds a dragon egg and she knows that she's, it's a fable, okay? So she knows that she's not supposed to keep it, but she figures it's not going to really hatch, but it's really pretty, but then it hatches and the baby dragon that comes out is really cute and she plays with it and they have a lot of fun playing with this together, this baby dragon. But then the dragon grows up and becomes a huge living breathing fire breathing threatening dragon and she has calls out for caretaker who is uh this a picture of god and uh she says kill it kill it and caretaker says you have to kill it yourself if i kill it you'll always resent me you have to slay your own dragons and so we have things in our lives that start out as things that we can control or we think that we can control them and it might be just something that we indulge in something that's fun you know shopping or i'm not going to <laughs> bring out a list but they're uh, yeah partying gambling we have a lot of things in life that that are uh, indulgences and it initially we can control them but eventually they become uncontrollable they get out of control and they are controlling us maybe it in a relationship it might just be giving in one time to anger and then oh well that was just a little thing it only happened once i'm sorry i did that and then the next thing you know it gets bigger and bigger and more and more increasingly abusive and you've lost control of it and we allow lies in our lives as ed was saying the liar speaks lies to us and we indulge them and then they gain control of us and so i think in reading this book to become aware of what the lies are in our lives what our own dragons are that we have nurtured and played with and indulged and then they have started controlling us we can start gaining control back and giving those things over to god and we have in our second edition of the trust book there's a, a leader's guide with lots of discussion questions and and we called it an application guide. I chose that word because I wanted people to apply it, not yeah. just to read it and put it on the shelf. Right. And so many people have commented that those practical questions help them to really deal with their trust issues. You might not even recognize that you have trust issues until it's brought to your attention. You just know that you can't get close to anybody and you're, you just have a string of broken relationships. Well, one of the things I've found in counseling is people don't take responsibility for those events that took place in the past. And so, you know, one of the chapters in Chapter 12, I think it's, you know, if it's going to be, it starts with me. 
And, you know, Rick Warren wrote Purpose Driven Life and talked about it's not about you. But in this case, it is about me. I need to take responsibility. Everybody had a father and mother. The question is, what did you do with the hurts that your father and mother, you know, I will ask a 50-year-old, so when was the last time you were living with your mom and dad? Well, they just caused me so much havoc and I just can't take it. And I'm going, but you're an adult. You can choose the truth now. You can choose to trust that God through his spirit can cause you to change. It, it will not happen with you, but you need to take responsibility. In a real way, I, there's a saying I use it, you're not sick, you're stuck. And what we want to do, and that's the whole idea of bringing this awareness, and it's real, it's revelation. The kingdom of God is built upon revelation. Mm-hmm. It's understanding, not just knowledge, but mm-hmm. it's understanding why the what, getting the aha. And so that's what this book is designed to do. It starts with the aha, and then we go on into practical application. You know, here's a few ideas, here's a few steps, you know, here's what to trust in, what not to trust in. And the last two chapters, so we finish up with uh, learning how to trust in God all over again. The last chapter is learning how to trust in other people mm-hmm. all over mm-hmm. again. That's but this tough. time, <laughs> trusting wisely, that's the vertical and horizontal idea. So if you're out there, you're not sick, you're stuck. Let's, let's go, let's, let's and we go want forward. to help you, so read that book. <laughs> well, on the back cover of the book, it asks the question, how thick is the wall you've built around your heart? And we have a lot of episodes, uh, events that take place through the years of our lives where say, well, <laughs> I'm never going to do that again. And uh, the book has the illustration of the the cat that jumps up on the hot stove and gets burned and then goes, well, (laughs) I'm never going to jump up on a stove again. We make these decisions. I'm never going there again. Well, they're vows and judgments, really, that they we talk about how to get rid of those. Right. But if, if I was burned in a relationship with a boy I dated in high school, and I decide I'm never going there again, and then in my marriage, I, with a completely different person, something happens, and Alan says something to me that reminds me of this boy I dated in high school, well, I'm not going there again. I already have been there, done that. I'm not going back there again. I'm not going to open myself up again to that kind of pain. So I cut myself off from a completely different person than the one who caused me the pain before. And because I've made a decision, a vow, a judgment that all men are like this, every situation is going to turn out that way. There was a song about that, you know, I'll never fall in love again. You know, I just, every time I hear that song, I thought, man, that lady just made a, a, you know, she just made a vow and a judgment and a generalization. All men are, you know. Yeah, and, exactly. And see, that, that takes you down a road, really, that closes off all kinds of opportunity to you. Mm-hmm. And so this book's, like I say, it's, it's meant to move us from why me to what's next, from a victim to a doctor you know, from a wannabe to a gonna be to a isby. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but that's the whole idea is get you back on, on back into life again. Let's press in to why so hard for us to trust again. Why is it so hard to trust others, especially after we've we've been hurt over and over and over again? What's that process look? It's not one of those things to where we we get this all at one time, do we? 
Mm-mm. This is a process. Alan, can you start walking us through what the process of, of trust looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why it's so traumatic, you know, the, just a, a little thing like the child is waiting at school and they're hoping their father will pick him up. But it's the third time that he's been left there because his dad's so busy at work or he could be so busy in ministry or whatever. It doesn't matter if you're at the bar or if you're at the church. The child is just feeling the rejection, the pain of abandonment. And, uh, you know, that may be seem like a, a much less, you know, an inconsequential thing compared to sexual abuse or issues that are very traumatic or a father who dies and without the child knowing it. And so there's pain. We, I've never met anyone that came into my office that said, could you please help me have more pain today? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm here for. I know everybody wants to get away from pain. And yet uh, some of the most traumatic situations in our lives can be used to strengthen and help our trust and help us actually uh, have better relationship with people in the world around us. But I think the first issue is pain, rejection, shame, maybe doing something that I had something done to me, a perpetrator. Somebody sexually abuses me as a child, but I take the guilt and I feel like I did something wrong. And that pain gets put into the rest of my life. And I don't even, all I've done is shut down. And so I think the first issue barrier is the pain that we have to get over. It seems to me like that's running from the pain, Alan, is an American idea, right? Or maybe it's just a human idea. But there's so much in the scriptures, isn't there, about pain and this building of spiritual muscle. What does God have to say about us being in the fire and being refined and all those wonderful analogies? And Jesus said it really well. It's inevitable. (laughs) <laughs> that you're right. going to have stumbling blocks yeah, yeah. okay in this life it's inevitable and but i like that idea that that word scandalizo mm-hmm. it's that's the stick on a box and let's say a rabbit rocks under that box and the what the stick you pull the stick and then the thing gets caught in that you know that's blessed is he in this world you have stomach blocks but blessed and then and i'm going to add on matthew 11 now to the end of this and pull it all together from the two different places that that word's used it's inevitable to have st- that in this world you have stumbling blocks, but blessed is he or she who is not overcome by what I'm doing in the midst of this stumbling block with your life. I'm taking you, I'm giving you a bigger glimpse of me. Jesus went through a stumbling block, mm-hmm. you know, when I, Jesus went through issues. But see, that's in one sense, it dry, it's created to drive you to God, is to trust in the Lord. Again, we all struggle with that. That whole thing of God's not good. I want to blame God? God's not good, or I wouldn't. He's do holding out on me, Ed. Yeah, he's holding out. He just <laughs> right? said, Eve said that. Yeah. Okay, the devil told Eve that. You know, he's trying to withhold something yeah. from you. He doesn't want you to have wisdom. He doesn't. You know, and the devil promised her wisdom, but gave her knowledge. That was a bad trait. Mm. Tree of knowledge. You no, know, and he says in John fourteen, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, and I think. We spend a lifetime trying to overcome our pain when really we have displaced who needs to help me do that. And really my trust needs to be in the Lord to overcome the pain so I can have 
the gain. I mean, he said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And, you know, one verse that I don't see put up on the refrigerators of our country is Philippians. It talks about if you want to be like Christ, you share in his sufferings. I mean, nobody places, everyone wants to do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but nobody wants to share in his sufferings. And there are sufferings that have been perpetrated against us, and then there are sufferings that we've caused ourselves because we're sinful people. And God says, I went to the cross so that you could have life and have it abundantly. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You can't experience that unless you trust in him. Yeah, that, that he forgot to tell us that experiencing the truth that will set us free also hurts like crazy. <laughs> Doesn't it? it I say it's sure. great to talk about those things after they're over, but when yeah. I'm going through it, man, I'm squirming. Yeah. But this is all the process, really, of just being conformed to the image of Christ. I mean, that it's been predestined. I'm sorry, it's predestined. I'm going to I'm going to become a Baptist real quick. Here. <laughs> um, it's Very predestined Calvinist. that you yeah. become conformed to the image of Christ. That one you can't get out well, of. Well, that's in the no matter what theology you are. There okay. you go. And part of that is this process of letting suffering work its perfect result, you know, and all those types, all things work together for good, you know. But to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, not, not all of them work for good. <laughs> They're working for good in your life. We have five steps to help people regain their trust uh, that are included in the book. And I'll just say them very quickly, and then we can talk about them a little bit more. But there are five R's. And the first one is remember. The second one is release. The third one is rethink. The fourth one is relearn, and the fifth one is reestablish. And so the remember is about remembering who God is, remembering his faithfulness, remembering why you are here and what God's purposes are for you. And when the children of Israel were getting ready to enter the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, or Moses said to them, you need to remember all you have been through here in the wilderness, how God led you, how God gave you his word, how he's given you what you need to eat. It's so good, Polly, because I think for so many of us who are so busy in our own little worlds, that if we don't spend time with the Lord first thing in the morning to remember who God says that we are, and to replace these lies that I tend to believe with the truth. That's right. To remember who God says about me, right? And right. That's, I'm just exactly. such an advocate of, of like, before you go see a counselor, before you go see anybody, you spend that time with the wonderful counselor. That's and right. And reading his word I and remembering. amen to that. I think, I'm, and I'm the counselor. Yeah. <laughs> I think I wake up every morning with amnesia where I mm. have forgotten mm, who good. God is. No matter how spiritual I felt when I went to bed the night before, I wake up every morning in my flesh. I start out all over again, like Groundhog Day, you know, mm -hmm. here I am, back, you know, they say we're young and we don't know, you know, like, the, we're back where we were, like stuck in darkness until we remember who God is that he's called us out of darkness into his glorious light. light. <laughs> and we come out of that darkness, take off our flesh, 
which Colossians 3 says we should do, put off the old man and put on Christ. It's a very simple transaction. You don't have to claw at yourself as if you're like stuck in some kind of spider webby horror (laughs) movie scenario. All you have to do is say, Lord, I remember who you are. I remember that I am yours. I choose now Mm -hmm. to put off my old man and put on Christ, and there we are. He says, put to death the deeds of the flesh every day. Right. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Right. So we just need to remember who we are and who God is and that we belong to him. You know, one other thing I think we need to have other people telling us that too, because if we try and do it alone, sometimes... We don't have the strength. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so the accountability of the body of Christ, I, lately, over the past 10 years, I just see so many leaders and people in the church who know the truth, who've memorized the truth, but they're not walking in the truth because when they were weak, they didn't have somebody to pick them up. And it says two are better than one and have a better reward, and we need each other. And that's the importance of the interrelated body of Christ that's there for you when you need him. We're, you know, with this whole pain thing, honestly, um, we love for Christ to be in us, but we don't want to be in Christ. Oh, oh my man. goodness. Man, wow. do we, you know, the, all, the new, all these, many of these new churches I see mm. and I speak in and stuff like that, you know, it's all about Christ and me and, mm. you know, look what he's done for me and, you know, aren't it's I It's all cool? eye-centered, and, isn't it? Yeah, and you see the whole idea, you start there with Christ and me, you know, look what the Lord has done, right. you know, and, but then the, this whole process is about moving you from Christ and me to you and Christ mm. is about, you know, and many people are in a relationship with God but they're not in fellowship with God. Mm-hmm. And you know, the whole book of First John yeah. is all about the Christian paradigm of fellowship, walking the light as he is. Like, you can be in relationship with God and be walking in complete darkness. Mm-hmm. That's called mm-hmm. relationship. Many people are. But fellowship is when you're walking in the light as he is in the light. And so what we're trying to do is, and what happens is when you're just in a relationship, and this is what these things the devil wants to move us from fellowship back into relationship. Yeah, we're saved, we're going to heaven, we're in a relationship, we're walking in darkness. And when you're walking in darkness, it's much easier to convince you that God's not good. It's much more easy to convince you that, how do you say that things aren't going to work out? And the truth is, is that all things are going to work together for good. Now, it might take a little, sometimes you got to give God a little time in this, okay? And it's a process. but. That would be, you know, my particular take on that is, is we are not human beings going through a temporary spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings going through a temporary human experience. Isn't that good? Ed said that we are not human beings going through a temporary spiritual experience, but rather spiritual beings going through a temporary human experience. You know, I'm reminded of Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. And look what these verses say. It's going to be a healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. 
Well, next week, we're going to discuss a few things here. Number one, the steps to regain trust. Number two, how trust impacts forgiveness. And number three, how control in a relationship, how that is just an illusion. And if you like what you hear, let me encourage you to visit walkandtalk.org. You'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book along with other resources for you, your family, and your church.
You are listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcasts on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, What is the Mission of the Church? Based on Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. What is the mission of the church? Now, now that might seem like an obvious question to some of you, but that's actually been a kind of conversation that's been going on amongst pastors, missiologists, and churches hot and heavy for the past decade, and there have been a number of different answers that have come out. In fact, in Transforming Mission, David Bosch writes that since the 50s, there's been a remarkable escalation in the use of the word mission amongst Christians. And this went hand in hand with a significant broadening of the concept, at least in certain circles. Now, mission once meant to send Christians cross-culturally to evangelize non-Christians and plant churches. That is a, a traditional understanding of mission. But today, mission can mean all sorts of things. And you might have heard this, that uh, mission is to revitalize a neighborhood or to renew the city or to eradicate poverty or care for the environment. In fact, this conversation took on so many different forms that it led to Stephen Neal to respond that if everything is mission, then nothing is mission. Of course, Chris Wright quickly quipped back, actually, if everything is mission, everything is mission. Well, that helped clarify things, didn't it? Well, I think Keith Fernando really is helpful here because he laid out four different ways that people look at mission. And I wanted to share those with you, not to confuse you or bog you down, but just to give you a kind of understanding of the ways that people are looking at this word from different angles. And there's some truth in all of them, though I don't think all of them are true. So the the first is the Missio Dei vision of mission. Now, this is an understanding that says that essentially God is the one who's on a mission, and everybody, including the church, is welcome to join God on that mission for doing all sorts of things, whether that be renewing the environment or bringing about uh, cohesion and coherence to social structures. Like, that's what God's doing, and so everybody's kind of invited to join God in this thing. And you might or might not be the church as a part of that, and you could be a non-Christian joining God in that mission, even if you're unwittingly doing so. Uh, There's a second way that people talk about mission, that is the cultural mandate. Now this comes from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and this is a vision of mission that comes from where God 
tells Adam and Eve that they are to uh, essentially exercise dominion over the earth, to take and subdue it. And so here the difference is, is it's the church that is actually called to do those things, to bring about um, the alleviation of poverty and uh, to bring about uh, social justice. These are things that the church is invited to do along with the purposes of redemption. There's a third way they describe it, and that is social action. Now, this is a little bit simpler. They say basically there are two purposes of the church. Uh, That is social justice and the gospel or evangelism. And social justice and evangelism are kind of like the two wings on a bird, and you have to have both of them to take flight. Well, the last one is uh, one that I would say is what I understand to be more biblical, not to say that aspects of all that I just described are, are somewhat true in some ways. There are aspects of each of these that are important. But I would say that all of them fail, and they fail in this point, and that is the point of priority. Where do we put our priority as the church? What is the unique thing that God has raised up a people to do this side of the cross until Christ returns? And I think this fourth view answers that. It is the traditional understanding that making disciples of all nations is the essential, exclusive content of mission. Now, just again, to be clear, disciples of Jesus care about injustice. Uh, But even more, we know that they're called not just to care about injustice, but to go beyond that and to actually love their neighbors. So that uh, it's not just like try to alleviate injustice, but it's actually to promote the love of God that has been shown to us in Christ. And part of being a disciple is learning to think with the mind of Christ as individual Christians in such a way that we are able to exalt Christ in every sphere of our lives, both public and private. So the question of the above isn't really an issue of importance as much as it is priority. The priority of the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I heard a great illustration this week that just really helped me connect with this. I don't know if you realize this, but IHOP is actually considered, is actually considered changing its name to IHOB. They are changing the P to a B to represent instead of pancakes, which they do very well, burgers, which they don't do very well. I think the illustration and connection point, we just want to make sure that what we are known for is not that we don't do certain things, but that we have a priority of doing the thing which we uniquely do well, which is proclaiming the gospel. It is the church of God that has been called to do that. So we want to keep our name as an international house of preaching the word of God, right? Now, the church must never lose the focus on the mission of proclaiming a cross-centered gospel. And I believe that Jesus draws attention to this in a familiar text to us, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. So we've been there before in this series. We're going back. We're going to speed through some things that we've covered. We're going to highlight other things. That's what we're going to do in this message. And here what we're going to find in Matthew 28 is this, that Jesus sends his church on mission to make disciples of all nations through gospel proclamation. That's what God has called us to. Sending his church on mission to make disciples of all nations through gospel proclamation. Now, we see this first in verses 16 to 17, and I just want to spend a few seconds, a few minutes, thinking about this question, who does God send on his mission? Because I think that's important. Like some of us trip up right here when we don't understand who it is that God sends on his mission. Uh, now, look with me again in Matthew 28. We're going to look at verses uh, 16 to 17. We're going to read there from the word of God. Matthew 28 
begin with verses 16 and 17. This is what the Word of God says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now you might remember sort of coming up to this very point, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary had gone and told the disciples, you need to meet Jesus in Galilee. And we didn't get GPS coordinates for exactly where that is. And we don't exactly know what mountain it is that Jesus is meeting with the disciples on. In fact, if you read through Matthew, you'll remember that Jesus spends a lot of time on mountains. In fact, as you read through, you'll notice that he met Satan on a mountain in chapter 4. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, fed 5,000 from a mountain in chapter 15, and then, of course, he, we had the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 17, the Mount of Olives teaching in chapter 24, and here Matthew concludes with Jesus yet again on what? A valley. No, it's a mountain. And on this mountain, we find him speaking with a kind of unprecedented authority. Now, this could be the Mount of Beatitudes where he began his ministry, but we don't know. But here's what we do know, and I I love what commentator Frederick Bruner says here in his insight on these disciples that Jesus is speaking to. He says this, The number that he gives here, the number 11, it limps. It is not perfect like 12. And Matthew sees Jesus commanding a defective 11. Do you see it? Even saying the number 11, it it reminds us that it's not quite the dozen that Jesus began with. We are reminded of Judas who actually sold out Jesus and then took his own life. It is a hobbled group that has come before Jesus on this mountain. Eleven actually, I believe, calls the great and great commission into question, doesn't it? I mean, is this the, the church that Jesus promised to build in Matthew 16, 18, where he told Peter and the other disciples that the gates of Hades or death will not prevail against it? Seems like it's already winning. And yet here what we find is, is because Judas is dead and Peter ran off, It is a deficient group. And then verse 17 doesn't exactly bolster our confidence anymore. Notice that Matthew says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. That's the right response. And then why did he have to add this? But some doubted. I mean, good, you know, a pastor would probably want to cover that kind of thing up. Weakness. Like, let's cover up weakness and deficiency. You know, our others, when they look at this, they actually, as they look at this doubt, argue that the some that doubted may speak of another group who is there and not disciples of Jesus. In other words, the disciples worshipped Jesus while others present doubted. Not like the perfect worship of those disciples who all through the Gospels look like winners, right? But I don't think so. See, I think it's much more likely here in context that Matthew is intentionally highlighting, highlighting an important reality about the nature of these disciples that many of us can relate to. Now, you might be asking, why did Matthew have to put that in here? And I believe this is the answer. He put it in there for you and me. We needed to see imperfect disciples because catch this, Jesus, he didn't just come to rescue sinners. He came to employ and deploy them on his search and rescue mission. He came to use failed, flawed, imperfect sinners to the glory of his name to make much of him. So before we ever get to the what of mission, we need to talk about the who. I I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to relate to a Peter that preached at Pentecost. 
or to John who visited heaven. But I can really relate to Peter recovering from the shame of denying Jesus three times to a little girl. Or Thomas needing to put his hands through the holes in the resurrected Jesus' hands to believe. See, some struggled with doubts. Even after seeing Jesus raised from the dead, even seeing some multiple times Jesus raised from the dead. And praise God. Praise God that he calls 11-ish men and women like Peter and Thomas who come limping with doubts up the mountain to meet the resurrected king ready to receive more, ready to live for more than what they are and who they are. Don't miss this. Jesus, he builds his indestructible church with broken people like Peter who find a new identity in Christ's work on the cross. And that is good news. In fact, the same God who sent his son into the world to save us now sends us into the world to proclaim the good news of salvation. Now, there might be many reasons this morning when you read this why you might have given your life to living in obedience to King Jesus' mission. Maybe you have lots of excuses for why you have not. Maybe you didn't realize that coming to Jesus in faith means to make disciples of all nations. Well, now you know. Or maybe you have some other limps that are tripping you up or slowing you down. Do you have past sins like Peter, who denied Jesus three times, or Paul, who actually killed Christians? Did you know that you have a new identity in Christ? And that God, in his infinite grace, can even take our past sin and shame and take it and twist it and turn it and reshape it and transform it in such a way that he can actually bring glory to his name, even because of your past sins and experiences? It's the kind of God that we have. Maybe you feel like you gimp because you don't know God's word well enough to be on mission. You know, I I bet that if you found, and this is you, and you found someone to disciple you weekly over the next two years, you'd be amazed at how God could change your confidence in the word of God. Or maybe you falter over the cost of time or money, or do you just not want to be bothered? Maybe you stumble over unconfessed sin in your love, or you fail to love others sacrificially. Those are things you need to repent of. But catch Jesus' response to the worshipers who doubted. Jesus doesn't completely fix them before he sends them. Did you notice that? He doesn't answer every one of their questions and fix every one of their weaknesses before he sends them to go and tell the nations about the glory of God. Disciples, hear me, disciples grow as they go. In fact, I would say if you don't go, you're probably not going to grow. Those things work hand in hand. See, some people have a hard time with this text because they define a disciple as being a black ops, special services kind of believer as opposed to every believer. But catch this, that's alien to the Bible. Every true Christian is a disciple sent on Christians, on Christ's mission. So please hear me. Jesus sends imperfect disciples to do his perfect work. That means that he's enlisted us. There's a second thing that we see here, though, in verse 18. It's the king of the universe that speaks to his church. Now, you'll notice here something very important. Our efforts to disciple others says something about how well we've listened to who Jesus says Jesus is. In other words, if we really listen close to who Jesus says he is, then we are going to be obedient to what he calls us to do. And just notice what Jesus says before these beleaguered disciples. He reveals himself as the great king who has received all authority in heaven on earth. Uh, Look what he says in verse 18. He leads with saying this, All authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. Now that means that he is saying, I am speaking with a kind of authority that is otherworldly. There is no other authority like the authority that I am coming to you with. And what that means is, is that whatever words come from my mouth come with that kind of force and that kind of meaning. Now does this mean the eternal Son of God gained more authority by virtue of his work on the cross and resurrection? Since it has been given to him, is it as though he did not have it? I don't think so. I think the Bible is very clear from beginning to end that Jesus is the God-man. But Dan, Don Carson helps us here when he says this. He says, it's not Jesus' authority per se that has become more absolute. Rather, the sphere in which he now exercises absolute authority are now enlarged to include all heaven and earth, i.e. the universe. Jesus is seen and recognized as the king of kings in a new and profound way. And it's in that moment that Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, Therefore, therefore, because I have all authority in verse 19, therefore, Jesus says that his mission for the church is that they be disciple-making disciples. Notice what he says in verses 19 to 20. You can look there with me. Here we see that Jesus commands the church to go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, you'll notice that, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, the therefore, of course, is pointing back to Jesus' unparalleled authority. I know that some have said when they look at this go, they say, this go is really saying as you go, make disciples. As in, like, just kind of do your thing and then, like, make disciples along the way. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing to see. But I do think that we need to acknowledge that here we find that it is the king of kings that's telling us to do something as we go. And so it does then again carry the kind of force of an imperative saying that we need to be a going people. Didn't Jesus lead with all authority on heaven on earth that has been given to him? And if that's true, then that therefore carries that kind of cosmic weight. And Jesus' cosmic authority actually propels ordinary Christians to become part of Jesus' mission to make disciples of all nations. Imagine how nuts that must have sounded to a number of disciples who probably never traveled more than 100 miles from home. You're going to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is almost 2,000 years before we would even have the iPhone 7, 8, 9, or 10. This is uh, 2,000 years before Delta would first take their flight out of Israel. And yet here what we find is, is that he is saying, you are going to, through you, I am going to make the good news of my kingdom known to everyone. I mean, this really sounds like the trailer to the original Mission Impossible. Who could do this? Well, we know that we can't do this by ourselves. That's really clear. But God can And part of being a disciple is joining God's mission of reaching the lost. So hear me. This call is going to challenge and be challenged by the individualism that is so part of our nature at every point. You know, our age recoils at thinking of others, especially those who are different than us. we, We hate to be put at inconvenience or to be put out of the way. But the call to make disciples is going to cost us time and money and comfort, and our individual pursuits. In fact, I I sometimes feel like as a minister of the gospel, my office ought to say, he who embraces the awkward every day in all kinds of different crazy ways, get ready for it. 
I tell my interns all the time, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel, you need to get really comfortable with awkward. If you're going to love people, you need to be able to embrace awkward and make it seem normal because guess what it is? We are, by nature, after the fall, an awkward people who need God's grace at every point. And Jesus commands here, his command means that Christ's authority, not self-centered desire, propels our lives to look to love our neighbors and the neighborhood just got a lot bigger. Because it is the nations that we are called to love. And Jesus' command to this group of Jewish Christians couldn't have been more uncomfortable. They were to go to the Gentile nations and make them followers of King Jesus and members of his kingdom. Now here's what that means. We seek to make disciples of our families in our context, of our church members, of our co-workers, and people that we don't know yet and places that we haven't yet been. That's what God calls us to do, to think about others who do not know Christ and opportunities that we have to display Christ and to make disciples of those people. And Jesus says here that there are a couple of priorities in making more disciples. Notice he says, go therefore and make disciples. That make disciples is the one main verb. And there are two participles that hang off of it and tell us how that we make disciples. The first is this, by baptizing them in the name of the triune God. Now we saw this, we see this in verse 19. We covered this uh, just a few weeks ago. But just be reminded that when Matthew talks about baptism, and Matthew talks a lot about the kingdom of God, baptism pictures entrance into God's kingdom with God's king and God's people. And this is seen most clearly, if not exclusively, this side of the cross in the local church. The local church is where you see God's kingdom, this side of the cross, on earth most clearly, if not exclusively. So that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation join God's kingdom and King Jesus' mission of making disciples. That's why you were baptized into the name of the triune God. You were joining something much bigger. So when you're getting baptized, it's actually a lot more like enlisting. You are enlisting in the mission of God. But there's a second thing that we see here in verse 20. And that is that disciples also teach other disciples to observe Jesus' commands. Now, Jesus says that the second part of disciple-making is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That includes proclaiming, that includes protecting, and that includes displaying. If we're going to make disciples and teach them to observe all that God has commanded and that Jesus has commanded, that means that we're going to have to proclaim, protect, and display. Now, proclamation is central to disciple-making, and that's the argument that we're making throughout. See, the spoken word of the gospel causes us to be born again as disciples of Jesus. In other words, that first move that you make towards God was actually ignited and initiated by your hearing of the word of God, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ had done. So proclamation is where it begins. But we also know that it's not only where it begins because uh, we find elsewhere that it is something that continues to work in our lives. In fact, we find in 1 Peter 1.23 that Peter tells us that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. It's the word of God that causes us to be born again. Acts 4.12 also tells us there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We need the proclamation of the word of God for salvation. See, Jesus saves us from God's just wrath on us for our sins, which would have landed us in hell forever. That, that's the right consequence for our sins. 
I love what uh, R.C. Sproul says because it's so clear. He said this in his famous book, Saved from What? His answer was really short and clear and helpful. He says, we have been saved by God from God. And that's the truth of the gospel. We deserve the just wrath of God, but in his infinite mercy, he sent his son to save us. Proclamation of the gospel brings new birth, which in turn causes us to be a proclaiming people. So the word that gives us life also becomes the thing that our life is about. So you'll notice that we began our churchology series in 1 Peter 2.9, where Josh Griever told us how God has called us as a chosen race for this purpose, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, baptism doesn't just picture union with Christ and his church, but his mission. So baptism, here again, is like being enlisted in God's mission of proclaiming Christ and teaching others to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Isn't that what the resurrected Lord did in Luke twenty four twenty seven? Didn't Jesus, when he came back, teach people about himself and how all the Bible points to him and makes much of him? You remember that on that road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 27, that his evangelistic model, his model of discipleship, was to begin with Moses and all the prophets and interpret to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So if Jesus has got limited time between the resurrection and the ascension, what does Jesus spend his time doing? Teaching disciples about who he is and what that means for their lives. And brothers and sisters, if that is what Christ is spending those few days that he has between the lines, that is exactly what we ought to be thinking about spending our lives about. God has called us to make much of Christ and show that he is the Messiah, the King, the Savior that others need. Displaying the power of the gospel is critical to disciple making. So that when we think about proclaiming the gospel... We need to know that the church is not being serious about the mission of proclaiming the gospel if they're not serious about living and loving like Jesus. We need to proclaim the gospel. Uh, But not only do we need to proclaim it, we need to protect it. Now here's one area where I, I just am really struck when I look at a number of churches, and particularly when I hear sermons on TV. I'm not saying all sermons on TV are bad. So often when I hear the word dealt with in these other contexts, I think that the church and many churches have lost a heart for protecting the word of God and making sure that the gospel is true in accordance with what the scriptures say. And if we really believe that the true gospel is the only way to salvation in Christ, then, then this is a serious deal. And I don't, I don't know that I feel or sense that some churches take it seriously enough. 1 Timothy 3.16 says this of the nature of what the church is. He describes it as this, the pillar and buttress of truth. You know what a pillar is? A pillar is something that holds something up. A buttress is something that holds something out. And so here we see this image that the church is really to hold up the truth, the truth of the gospel of who Christ is, and hold out anyone who might come in, wolves or others, who might compromise that truth, change, distort it, or add to it. And yet so many churches are just kind of like, hey, we just want to affect people and influence people and help them make them feel spiritual. And we're not really so important with whether or not we are saying what the word of God says. 
And brothers and sisters, if we're not taking the word of God seriously, we might be signing tickets to hell on a daily basis. If we take the gospel seriously, we know that there is no other way by which man, woman, and child might be saved before a holy and righteous God because we deserve judgment, but God is infinitely good and he has given us the way, but it is a way. It is the way. There is no other. We need to make sure that we're protecting the gospel for the good of others. But not only do we protect it, we need to display the power of the gospel in disciple-making. Now, I know that when some people talk about the gospel is being gospel proclamation is being central to the mission of the church. Others are like, well, you feel a little bit like a, a you're advocating a talking head, right? And let me just say really clearly, we are by no means saying that we believe in a cheap kind of gospel that doesn't always result in changed and transformed lives. We believe in a gloriously powerful gospel that comes with the Holy Spirit and that changes people, and we see that happening all around us. I'm excited about all of the testimonies of God's grace here at Trinity Bible Church. We don't believe in another gospel than that. But we need to make sure that we, at the same time, are remaining absolutely vigilant that we are believing in the true gospel of the Bible. Now, that said, when some people talk about incarnational ministry, on the other hand, they seem like sometimes they might underestimate the uniqueness of Jesus as the Christ, right? In fact, Michael Horton had this article where he was talking about incarnational ministry and he said it almost seems like some people who talk about this have a messiah complex where they don't understand that jesus was king and the god man and they're not well i just want you to know i know that i'm not jesus in fact if you've ever been on jesus's mission you quickly figure out that you are not jesus Because you realize, don't you, if you've tried to share Christ with others and you've tried to encourage them and you've tried to step into the mess of their lives and point them to the the kind of help that's only available in Christ, you know, you know that you need Jesus because you're not Jesus, right? Amen? Like, if you've really tried to help people, you know that. I'm not infinite. So we join Jesus' mission and we find that we need help. Yet, we also recognize that Philippians 2 invites us to follow Jesus' example of humility and laying down our life for the church. And Jesus calls us to love our neighbors and even our enemies so that if you're a Christian, you are told this, that you have the Holy Spirit sealed upon you and you are the temple of the living God where his presence dwells. Wherever Christ's spirit is, Christ's kingdom is. And you will observe Jesus' word. Now doesn't Jesus say that that our love for one another will actually set us apart as his disciples? That practical outworking of love, not just the feeling that we have inside, but that outward display of loving others sacrificially. And God calls us sons and daughters because we really do image him to those who are living in darkness. See, transformed lives, they light up with the power of the gospel. Drown 
and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. of God in helpless pain, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.